You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back. I am your host, James Corbett, welcoming you back to the continuation of The Corbett Report podcast. And I am coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 20th day of August, 2011. And, of course, I would like to thank everyone for staying with me during my lengthy summer vacation. And I would like to invite all of you to check into the website, CorbettReport.com, so you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I have created and conducted over the past four years, and links to other alternative information and media websites, like GlobalResearch.ca, where you can find unfiltered, unbiased uh, news from a reality-based perspective. And on that note, I would like to once again thank everyone for staying with me over this uh, summer hiatus and i am back in japan and trying to get back into the swing of things here and i am ramping up to start once again doing all of the weekly videos uh, that you expect from corporatereport.com as well as articles and interviews and uh, podcast episodes and all of those goodies so please stay tuned as uh, that starts to come out over the next week Although I would like to add the caveat that uh, New World Next Week will be on hiatus itself for a couple of weeks as uh, James Evan Pilato will be taking a bit of time off from the website. So so uh, New World Next Week will not be available for the next couple of weeks, but I will be getting back into the swing of things with a global research uh, video and with a BoilingFrogsPosted.com video, the eye-opener, as you might recall, and other such video reports and articles and interviews. So please stay tuned to CorporateReport.com and subscribe to the RSS feed if you haven't already to stay up to date with all of the latest updates. And on the note of global research and Boiling Frogs post and subscriptions, I would like to really, truly take this moment to give a heartfelt appreciation to all of those people over the past four years who have supported this endeavor of the Corbett Report in my humble attempt to try to get out true information to the masses in the best way that I possibly can. And I am only a human being, so I do falter at times, and I'm not necessarily the best person in the world to be doing this, but I am doing my level best. And after four years of really struggling to try to make the best possible report that I can, I am absolutely overwhelmed to admit that right now, as it, as of the end of August, I am preparing to go full time into the Corbett Report and to make that my main occupation. And I obviously could not do this without the incredible, overwhelming support of all of those people who have signed up to become subscribers of the Corbett Report and donate 100 Japanese yen per month. Truly, without your support and without all of the people who have purchased the 2009 Video Archive DVD, I wouldn't be able to to really make this step. And I am expanding also the relationship with globalresearch.ca and with uh, Sibyl Edmonds' BoilingFrogsPost.com. So I am going to try to make this giant leap over into making the Corbett Report my full-time endeavor. So once again, thank Thank you to everyone who has supported my work in whatever capacity, whether monetary or otherwise, over the years. I couldn't do this without you, and now more than ever, I still need your support, probably uh, probably much more so than before, uh, as I make this incredible leap into a full-time endeavor of the Corbett Report. So from September, you should start seeing much, much more information coming up at Corbett Report with uh, much greater frequency, and I hope to be really updating the website on pretty much a daily basis. 
So, um, so please look for a lot more coming out in the near future. And again, it, all of this is brought to you by you. So uh, please support alternative media and websites and information that you find useful, whether that's the Corbett Report or your other favorite independent broadcasters. Just make sure that you are spreading the, uh, spreading the wealth and spreading the love while we have it, because these are extremely interesting times that we're living in. And I'm, well, I'm afraid, afraid to say probably only becoming more a- interesting by the day. And, uh, and on that note, of course, we are ramping up for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And as I'm sure my listeners know, I am going to be devoting more and more of this podcast and my videos and interviews and articles over the next few weeks to that topic. So on that note, let's start today's episode on the subject of 9-11. And uh, there's, an, as always, a lot of information to go through. So let's get straight into it. Welcome to episode 196 of the Corbett Report podcast, Where Were They on 9-11? The questions are almost childlike in their simplicity. Where was Bush on 9-11? Where was Cheney on 9-11? Where was Rumsfeld on 9-11? These questions are so simple that it would strike one upon hearing them for the first time that perhaps we already know those answers. Well, surely Bush was in Florida, we saw him in the classroom, and then he went to Washington, right? Or Cheney? Well, I guess he must have been in Washington, and I suppose he was directing the operations that day, and probably uh, I remember something about him being on the line with the, with Bush and others. Or, or, or Rumsfeld, well, he's the Secretary of Defense. Well, certainly he was manning the Pentagon and directing things from there, and uh, was obviously tracking Flight 77 as it came in towards Washington, right? Well, those might be the common conceptions that the average person who has not spent any time whatsoever investigating 9-11 might have of the actual actions of these people on that day. But of course, those would be completely incorrect in all points. And in order to start understanding what these people really were doing and why it's important, I set out three years ago now to write a series of uh, to write a series of videos and an article that encapsulated those three videos answering those simple questions. So the videos were entitled, well, basically enough, where was Rumsfeld on 9-11, where was Cheney on 9-11, and where was Bush on 9-11? And they were uh, consolidated in an article that I wrote in June of 2008 called The Three Amigos on 9-11. Now, I would urge people to go and read that article if they have not yet done so, and to go and look at those videos, as I think they were at the time and still continue to be quite enlightening Because although, again, it's a very simple question to ask, where were they on 9-11? It's a question to which the answers most people do not know. Most people just have no idea what these people were actually doing. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is the absolute, completely open, publicly viewable, publicly available information about where these people were, what they were doing, often coming from their very own mouths. So it's extremely important to at least have that much of an understanding if we're going to have any type of understanding of what was really happening on 9-11. So today I was toying with the idea of playing the audio from those videos, but the audio leaves something to be desired as the production standards of the Corbett Report back three years ago were, well, a little bit less stellar than they are today, shall we say. And also there's been a lot of new information coming out in recent years, and so you can, and I certainly suggest that people do go and look at those older videos and and get to familiarize themselves with the information in there. But today let's update some of that information and look at some of the newer things 
that have been happening and coming out and look at some other information about other people, their major uh, players on 9-11 and where they were on 9-11. Because again, a very simple question can sometimes have very profound and very revealing answers. And I think this is one of those situations. And let's start by taking a look at the Secretary of Defense in the Bush administration, or at least the first five years of it, Donald Rumsfeld. And as he came into the Pentagon in 2001 as Secretary of Defense, he inherited, uh, well, quite a big mess uh, that had been ongoing for some time. And as the Inspector General's report in 2001 proved, the Pentagon was at that time incapable of tracking $2.3 trillion dollars in expenses. That's right, $2.3 trillion equivalent to the annual operating budget of the entire U.S. government at the time had somehow just, well, they just couldn't track it through the system. Now, uh, as defenders and apologists of the system will tell you, well, that's not the same as saying that the money was missing. It's, it was there. It just couldn't quite be accounted for, and, and it, people couldn't quite follow it as it went through the system. Well, uh, I, ultimately, that amounts to almost the exact same thing. And if you actually bother to read the Inspector General report, you can find that uh, basically there was a lot of accounting trickery and shenanigans going on to try to make it look like they had a balanced budget when, of course, they did not. So, so it's a very interesting scandal and saga. And as listeners, or longtime listeners to the Corbett Report will, will know, definitely know by now because it's something I've brought up numerous times. Of course, uh, Donald Rumsfeld convened that famous press conference on September 10th, 2001 to declare a new war on a shadowy terrorist group? No, on bureaucracy, because apparently the Pentagon was at war with bureaucracy and they were trying to tackle this problem of the funds that could not be tracked through the system. Well, at the time, as I say, it was $2.3 trillion, but uh, that was only a drop in the bucket, and it continued to accrue, and by the time it got to the 2006 Defense Department budget hearings, uh, Cynthia McKinney, who was a member of Congress at the time, was able to grill Rumsfeld over the missing trillions, and at that time, she was able to point to over $4 trillion that by then had accrued in this um, money that just couldn't be tracked through the system. So again, that's something that people should be very familiar with, I am imagine um, if they've been listening to the Corbett Report or following the alternative media for any length of time, because it has uh, is a story that obviously, for, for good reason, has gained quite a bit of traction in the 9-11 truth movement. And um, But in recent years, um, some other uh, footage and things have come out related to this, including a very interesting video that shows... Uh, shows Rumsfeld being questioned about that missing trillions even before September 10th in the run-up to 9-11 in the months preceding. He was being grilled by congressmen and senators about the $2.3 trillion. So, so it was an ongoing scandal at the time, but just one that had not filtered through to the mainstream media for some reason. And uh, it, that video makes it very clear that it was uh, something of a scandal. And, and there were some politicians, at least, who were paying attention to it at the time. And it's very interesting to watch that pre-9-11 uh, footage of him being grilled about the, the missing money. But, uh, but something that may have slipped under many people's radar, because it kind of happened, uh, well, very quietly earlier this year, Donald Rumsfeld was, in fact, finally, actually, uh, answer, grilled about the $2.3 trillion. He was actually asked about it by a member of the media. Of course, not a member of the mainstream media, which has shown an almost complete and total disregard for this story. Um, it, there was one famous report that's been shown many times and is e easily available on YouTube that uh, showed a mainstream news uh, report on the subject, that, which I believe was from 2003, 
2002, perhaps. But uh, but other than that, the mainstream media, of course, has been deafeningly silent on this. But uh, in, earlier this year, Anthony Antonello of We Are Change was able to actually grill Rumsfeld about the missing $2.3 trillion. He was able to put the question to him, at least in passing, of course, not having uh, the proper press credentials and not being able to sit down for an interview with Rumsfeld that... Well, the answer obviously leaves something to be desired, but whatever whatever it is, it's still absolutely imperative that the alternative media continue to put these types of real questions to people like Rumsfeld whenever and wherever they can. So my hat's off to We Are Change for being able to finally put this question to him. So let's take a listen to this clip in which Rumsfeld explains about the $2.3 trillion that just couldn't be tracked through the system. Pentagon. The day before 911, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld declared war, not on foreign terrorists. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. He said money wasted by the military poses a serious threat. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. Rumsfeld promised change, but the next day, the world changed. According to some estimates, we cannot track 2.3 trillion dollars in transactions. Mr. Secretary, according to the Comptroller General of the United States, there are serious financial management problems at the Pentagon, to which Mr. Cooper alluded. Fiscal year 1999, 2.3 trillion missing. If you could proceed to my second question, please. The the second question... I've forgotten what the second question was. Just do it. There you go. Don't wait. Okay. Okay, Donald, did you ever Thank find you. that $2.3 trillion that you talked about the day before 9-11? Did you ever find it? The, it was always there. And what the problem was, was was tracking it through the system. So when I arrived in the Pentagon and they told me that they can't track $2.3 billion that had been accumulated over the period before I got there, it turns out that there was not a a, a legal problem or a loss. It was a matter of, of the complexity of the systems and tracking it all the way through. We got him. Um, go. 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 Sorry, guys. Sorry. Oh, I see. It wasn't a matter of a legal problem or a loss. It was just a matter of the complexity of tracking and managing all of the flow of information through the system. Well, that's good enough for me. I guess we don't really need to concentrate on the on the army budget accounting uh, problems or or how that $2.3 trillion worth of transactions somehow became untrackable. I, I, I think that's really not something that we need to look into, nor do we have to ponder how it is that Flight 77 slammed into the very part of the Pentagon where the budget analyst office was working on the question of the missing trillions. I'm sure that's all just one big coincidence and definitely does not need further investigation. And uh, the fact that Rumsfeld misspeaks and says 2.3 billion during that interview when in fact it's 2.3 trillion, well, he's only off by a factor of a thousand. And I'm sure that kind of uh, misstatement was uh, not intentional and not intended to downplay the enormity of the 2.3 trillion. Once again, I guess everyone can just go back to sleep and stop worrying about it because uh, Rumsfeld has spoken. 
But I, speaking non-ironically, I would very much like to commend We Are Change for actually putting this question to Donald Rumsfeld and being the only media anywhere in the world to really put this question after 9-11 to Rumsfeld. Uh, it's something that was really just dropped off the radar after 9-11. And uh, other than McKinney and We Are Change, very, very few people have ever brought this uh, this topic up. So I think people still need to continue confronting him about this. And I think eventually, if we can make enough noise, we can get people interested. And once again, because we are replacing the so-called mainstream media, we are going to start setting the news agenda in the coming years. So really, it's up to us, you and me and everyone out there listening to make sure the awareness of this story spreads. Because again, it is an extremely important story, whatever you think about the events of 9-11. But moving on to 9-11, let's start examining Rumsfeld's actions on that day, which of course are highly suspect. And once again, something that I have talked about before on this podcast, so I won't go into in great length right now, is the story of what Rumsfeld was actually doing on 9-11 as the events were unfolding. And I will once again refer listeners to an excellent article on that subject that was published on 911blogger.com back in 2007 by Matthew Everett. And uh, this this article is entitled Donald Rumsfeld on 9-11, An Enemy Within, and it goes into the rather extraordinary story of uh, Rumsfeld's day, and uh, I'll just read a little bit from that article, quote, Donald Rumsfeld started the morning on 9-11 with an 8 o'clock breakfast meeting with several members of Congress held in his private dining room at the Pentagon to discuss the subject of missile defense. During this meeting, according to his own recollection, Rumsfeld warned that sometime in the next 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 months, there would be an event that would occur in the world that would be sufficiently shocking that it would remind people again how important it is to have a strong, healthy defense department that contributes to, that underpins, peace and stability in our world. He was subsequently informed of the first attack in New York promptly after it happened. He says, someone walked in and handed me a note that said that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. After receiving the note, rather than initiating or joining any emergency response process, Rumsfeld continued as if this were just an ordinary day. As he later recounted, we adjourned the meeting and I went in to get my CIA briefing. Inside her office in the Pentagon, Tori Clark saw the second plane hitting the World Trade Center live on television. It was now obvious that the U.S. was under attack. As she later described, immediately the crisis management process started up. Along with Larry Derrida, she headed to Rumsfeld's office. When they arrived there, Derrida told the defense secretary, Sir, I think your entire schedule is going to be different today. By this time, the Pentagon's executive support center was going into operation. Located down the hallway from Rumsfeld's office, the ESC comprises several conference rooms that are secure against electronic eavesdropping. It is, according to Clark, the place where the building's top leadership goes to coordinate military operations during national emergencies. One would therefore have expected Rumsfeld to have gone straight there or to the National Military Command Center, located next door to it. Yet, as before, he continued as if this were an ordinary day. He told Clark and Dorita to go to the ESC and wait for him. In the meantime, he would get his daily intelligence briefing, which was already scheduled for 9.30. Rumsfeld wanted to make a few phone calls, so he stayed in his office. What Donald Rumsfeld did in the next half hour is unclear. Even in his prepared testimony to the 9-11 Commission, he said nothing about his actions during this crucial period leading up to the attack on the Pentagon. End quote. 
I will let you continue reading that extremely informative article. It is well-sourced. There are links provided for all of the claims and all of the quotes in that article, so I certainly suggest that people go and check out, check out that link from the documentation section for today's episode. It is extremely enlightening, and it talks. Uh, it goes on to talk about how Rumsfeld then jumped up uh, from his desk after the Pentagon was hit and ran out to the crime scene and was, was there abandoning his position as people were trying desperately to reach him during this incredible unfolding series of events, and he's out there. Uh, doing well, basically posing for cameras and uh, and trying to help uh, people on stretchers and things. It's uh, uh, absolutely unthinkable the, his actions on that morning. And one of the interesting things about that was uh, his recollection of how he was uh, convening that private breakfast meeting on uh, on the morning of nine eleven, just before the attacks occurred, saying that within the next two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve months, there's going to be a major event that will convince the world that a strong de- defense department is necessary just as the planes are hitting the uh, the World Trade Center. Well, that, uh, that's a rather remarkable recollection was made on, on the Larry King show back in uh, 2001 in, in December uh, during an interview. And the, uh, the transcript of that is available from the uh, def- defenselink.mil, so I'll put in a link for that. But interestingly enough, the very interesting uh, blogger Shoestring who runs a blog at uh, blogspot.com, shoestring911.blogspot.com, and who has had some really interesting articles over the years. So I would suggest people check that out. Well, he had actually a follow-up on that rather remarkable reminiscence. And uh, in 2007, he wrote an article called Donald Rumsfeld's Eerie 9-11 Premonition. Quote, during a recent congressional hearing on the friendly fire death of football star Pat Tillman in Afghanistan in 2004, Representative John Micah gave new details about an 8 o'clock breakfast meeting held at the Pentagon the morning of 9-11 by then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Micah told the hearing, which was attended by Rumsfeld, I think on my dying day, I'll remember September 11th, when I was, Don- when I was with Donald Rumsfeld in the Pentagon for breakfast that morning. He invited me and half a dozen members of Congress, I think, over to the Pentagon. And the subject of the conversation Donald Rumsfeld was interested in was the military had been downsized during the 90s since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what we were going to do about the situation is we had another, the word you, i.e. Rumsfeld, used was incident. I remember in the conversation, sitting in the room right off of his office for coffee that morning, and he was trying to make certain that we were prepared for something that we might not expect. Micah, who in September 2001 was the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Aviation, had previously commented, little did we know that within a few minutes of the end of our conversation, and actually at the end of our breakfast, that our world would change and that incident that we talked about would be happening. Micah's remarkable account is similar to Rumsfeld's own recollection of that breakfast meeting on 9-11. He told CNN's Larry King, I had said that sometime in the next 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 months, there would be an event that would occur in the world that would be sufficiently shocking that it would remind people again how important it is to have a strong, healthy defense department that contributes to, that underpins peace and stability in our world. Soon afterwards, someone walked in and handed me a note that said that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. Furthermore, this breakfast meeting is curious not just because of Rumsfeld's eerie premonition, but also because numerous key individuals attended it. Then-Secretary of the Army Thomas White, who was at this meeting, has said that the chairman of the four oversight committees were there. And, describing the meeting to PBS, he said, Don Rumsfeld had a breakfast, and virtually every one of the senior officials of the Department of Defense, service chiefs, secretary, deputy, everybody, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
and as that breakfast was breaking up, the first plane had hit the World Trade Center. How very curious. Right before the 9-11 attacks began, the Secretary of Defense just happened to be meeting with virtually every one of the senior officials of the Department of Defense. Perhaps it could have been fortuitous that all these military leaders were together at this time, ready to leap into action and coordinate a response to the unfolding emergency. But this did not happen. As White has said after the meeting ended, we all went on with the day's business. For example, White continued on to give a pre-planned talk at the nearby Army-Navy County Country Club. A strange day indeed. End quote. Well, a strange day, I guess, from one perspective, but certainly given Rumsfeld's absolutely abominable abandoning of his post during the height of the most incredible penetration of America's defenses in its history as a country, well, one would have to say something a little bit more than strange. One would have to begin using the T word, i.e. treason. And that is only further reflected in the actions of his cohorts in the Bush administration that day. Of course, there's the, uh, the actions of uh, Dick Cheney, and, uh, well, that's a very much an open question still, even at this stage. And my Where Was Cheney on 9-11 video makes very clear that what Cheney said happened and what his, the transportation secretary at the time, Norm Mineta, said happened that day do not square. And the remarkable thing about that is that Norman Mineta himself didn't even know that he, uh, his testimony had been actually basically discarded by the 9-11 Commission uh, until after it was, uh, it, until actually quite recently when We Are Change, once again, became the only media to inform him of the discrepancy. And I'll let you go into that video to find out about the discrepancy, but basically Norm Mineta said that Cheney was already there when Mineta had arrived at the Presidential Emergency Operations Center at 9.20 in the basement of the, uh, the White House. Whereas uh, Dick Cheney and the 9-11 Commission contends that he did not get there until 9.58, i.e. after the Pentagon attack had already happened. So... Obviously, there's a huge discrepancy there and one that definitely needs to be pinned down. And uh, Norm Mineta might have something to say about that if anyone was willing to ask him. But again, it's only We Are Change, to my knowledge, has ever brought this discrepancy up to him. And I will let you watch that video to find out the real import of that. But let's move along to Bush, who, of course, well... I think if there's anything that most of the 9-11 truth movement can agree on, and there really isn't much these days as it's splintered in so many directions, but if there is anything that we can agree on, it's that George, H, uh, George W. Bush probably had next to nothing to do with the actual attacks themselves and probably was not aware of them. Because George W. Bush was very much a puppet and not, I would imagine, the ringleader of the Bush administration, with most people pointing to Cheney as the real power behind that throne, at least for those eight years. So the question then becomes, what was Bush doing and what, how, what, to what extent did he know what was happening? To what extent was he finding out what was happening? And where was he going on that day as he was, of course, starting out in Sarasota, Florida? Well, there's a number of very interesting things about his movements on that day. And in that video, Where Was Bush on 9-11 that I put together in 2008, I featured uh, an extended 
uh, excerpt from a talk by Webster Tarpley, who in his book 9-11 Synthetic Terror, which I've read parts of before in this podcast and which I would once again commend to listeners as an extremely, extremely interesting book with some very interesting facets and, and uh, tidbits about 9-11. But by far, I think the most interesting uh, chapter in that book for me was the chapter on Angel is Next, i.e. the coded warning that, uh, that Bush supposedly received on the morning of 9-11, supposedly a credible threat uh, of the, on the president's life of someone who is claiming that Angel, i.e. the code name for Air Force One, is next, i.e. is going to be uh, commandeered, is going to be blown up, is going to be hijacked, whatever the case may be. Well, that is an extremely interesting part of the story, one that was almost immediately covered up. It was acknowledged and then basically buried. And once again, the media does not uh, does not ever bring that that topic up again. But I think it is worth going into. So uh, instead of listening to the Where Was Bush on 9-11 video, which once again, you can go and look at for yourself. But let's listen to uh, an extended part of that, uh, that talk that Webster Tarpley gave on Bush's movements and what it really means for what was really happening on 9-11. There's the other dimension, is that as, as you read, for example, in my book, I devote a whole chapter to Bush's behavior and movements on this day, because I consider it to be of critical importance. Uh, a Secret Service agent, hearing the news of either the first or the second plane hitting the buildings in Manhattan, said... We're out of here. That was standard operating procedure. The standard operating procedure is, is if a major terror event is in progress, the president has to be taken to a secure location. Uh, we know, for example, Cheney, obviously considered much more important, was literally picked up and carried from his office in the White House down into the bunker in the in the sub sub basement, where he would probably be safe from a from a direct air, air airplane impact, maybe. But in the case of Bush, despite the fact that one Secret Service agent says we're out of here, they don't move him. He stays there. Somehow that impulse is overridden. The standard operating procedure is abandoned, and Bush is essentially left there as a sitting duck. I don't believe reports of conspiracy theorists who say, well, they let him stay there because they were all in on it. They all knew everything that was happening. The invisible government, the coup faction or putsch faction behind 9-11 is in the federal government, but they don't issue engraved invitations to their terrorist actions. They confront somebody like Bush with a fait accompli, and we'll get into that perhaps in a second, but they left him there as a very inviting target. There's good research by Daniel Hopsicker that there had been something resembling an assassination attempt against Bush in the morning. A camera crew showed up at Bush's hotel in Longboat Key in Florida on the morning of 9-11 at seven, 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, and they said, we're here to do an interview. The Secret Service allegedly said, we don't know anything about that interview. Go away. The guess might be that uh, it might be a Maksud operation. In other words, Maksud uh, was uh, a leader of the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. He had been assassinated several days before by a camera crew of suicide bombers who came in, and instead of having a camera, as we do here, I hope, they had an exploding bomb that killed all of them, but killed Maksud as well. Um, I would ascribe that to the CIA rather than to... Uh, 
rather than to anybody else because they needed they, they didn't want a nationalist like Maksud uh, running the Northern Alliance. He would have been too difficult to handle. He was somebody who had stood up to the Soviets. He wouldn't hesitate to stand up to the to the punks from the CIA and, and, and the US forces. So assassination attempt in the morning, hung out to dry, essentially left there, security stripped in the morning, then Air Force One takes off, no fighter escorts are there. And there's also a tremendous reluctance on the part of the pilot of Air Force One to tell the Air Force where he's going. The reports are that a couple of fighter jets finally appear, but they're simply told, follow Air Force One, we're not telling you where we're going. Doesn't really indicate too much trust in the military indicates rather that the people in Air Force One knew that they were in the midst of a military coup and that Bush might become expendable at any point in the day. And then above all, the centerpiece of 9-11, I think the single most important piece of evidence in the entire day, the incoming threat given to the Secret Service, Angel is next, meaning we will destroy Air Force One. And it doesn't just come with Angel is Next. It then comes with a train of cosmic-level code words, top-secret code words, indicating that behind that threat is a network that has access to the most important secrets of a whole range of executive departments, presumably CIA, National Security Agency, Pentagon, FBI, Justice, Treasury even, the whole array. And that's a threat. The idea is, what they're saying to Bush is, you've got to go on television and start saying, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, 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 and you will remain in office. If you don't, you may be liquidated at any time. You may not see the end of this day. I think some, to some degree, what's most interesting about 9-11 are the things that almost happened but didn't. What happened, of course, was a terrific tragedy, but the things that might have happened were even worse. The other thing the invisible government wanted uh, Bush to do, this coup faction, if you will, was to get on the phone with Putin and tell him, we are seizing Afghanistan now, and we're going to set up bases in your soft underbelly in the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzia, for starters, after that, perhaps, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, uh, and the rest. Uh, that is a very dangerous move. Uh, that might have been uh, responded to by Putin with his own threats. He might have said no. So the invisible government had to have the possibility of nuclear escalation, and they did. They had it in two ways that we know of. One is that in the Angel's next phone call, they had code words that seemed to indicate that they had access to the nuclear launch codes, that they were able to somehow access the so-called football, the collection, the briefcases that are filled with these codes that accompany the president but are also kept in other places for use in case of all-out nuclear war. So the, the perpetrators of 9-11, the coup faction inside the U.S. government, have these codes. They can launch nuclear war that way. There's another way they could have launched it through an exercise called Global Guardian, because it just so happened that on the morning of 9-11 there was also an exercise simulating all-out thermonuclear war. And part of that exercise appears to have been an attempt 
as a part of the drill, as a part of the simulation, for a rogue faction to gain access to command and control systems that would give them the ability to launch missiles. So that might be the concrete, specific back door that the invisible government might have used in order to uh, escalate in the nuclear realm if that had become necessary. Essentially, the ultimatum to Bush is either you launch the war of civilizations against the Arabs and the Islamic world in Afghanistan, later in Iraq, you launch it in conventional form, or we will launch it ourselves in nuclear form. In other words, we can incinerate Cairo, Damascus, Tehran, uh, you name it, Kabul, all of those places can be hit by missiles within minutes. We'll do that and leave you to deal with the consequences. Now, of course, one of the overtones of this, and I'm, I'm relying here on, just in terms of the sources, the Réseau Voltaire, presumably having the benefit of the French intelligence services. Secondly, Debka, a website that is close, I believe, to the views of the Israeli Mossad. And then another one called Namakon, which is a group of KGB Soviet intelligence veterans. They seem to converge on this hypothesis that uh, there was a nuclear option built into it and uh, the only they, essentially it's an ultimatum telling Bush that the only way you can remain in office is if you begin to preach the war of civilizations and uh, and act in the way that we are we are demanding there's also reports through the Rachel Voltaire in particular that Tony Blair was on the phone actively with Bush telling him, you've got to go on television and say, Al-Qaeda bin Laden. And of course, for that, there was absolutely no proof. There was no scrap of proof in the world that, that bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, had anything to do with this. Uh, and indeed, uh, the, the FBI has admitted that in going into Afghanistan, they never found anything, not one line, not one scrap, that would have anything to do with the events uh, of 9-11. So I think the, the um, scratching the surface on 9-11, what is revealed is a horror that is much greater than even the one that we saw. As I say, that story just provides so many fascinating tidbits and things to think about on that day and things that once again just have never been raised in any serious way by the mainstream media, not thinking about the significance of Offutt Air Force Base or the meeting that was coincidentally going on there or any of the other details about that. But uh, once again, I think it's something that very much bears fruit in terms of research and I think we'd all like to know a little bit more about Bush's actions on that day. And we are unlikely to ever receive that uh, if we are just to, to go to sleep and to read the 9-11 Commission report, unsurprisingly. So we, as I say, that's those, uh, the Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, those were covered a few years ago uh, with the best evidence at the time that I had access to in my article, The Three Amigos on 9-11. So once again, you can go and look at that and watch those videos in their entirety and find out more about those movements. And as I say, I think it's an extremely important thing to do because most people, when asked something like that, might 
regardless of what they think about 9-11, might, may or may not have any inkling about any of those things, but most people would be curious to know about these stories in more detail, and I think the more we know about 9-11, the more people become interested in asking questions about the story we've been told, because it really is only people's ignorance of the, the facts of what happened on 9-11 that allows them to believe in the official story, riddled as it is with errors, inconsistencies, and omissions. So let's move on to some other things that were not covered in that article, but obviously there were other people who were supposedly involved in 9-11 that, that uh, again, it would be fruitful to ask the simple question, where were they on 9-11? So why don't we turn to the arch mastermind himself, the man who was supposedly just killed on May 1st and had his body dumped in the river uh, before anyone could see. Well, how's, how convenient was that? Uh, Osama bin Laden, because certainly it must be quite easy to find the answer to such a simple question. Where was he on 9-11? And the answer has been hiding in plain view for years and years and years and was reported on by none other than CBS News. And the answer is rather surprising. Dan Rather reporting from CBS News headquarters in New York. Good evening. As the United States and its allies in the war on terrorism press the hunt for Osama bin Laden, CBS News has exclusive information tonight about where bin Laden was and what he was doing in the last hours before his followers struck the United States September 11th. This is a result of hard-nosed investigative reporting by a team of CBS News journalists and by one of the best foreign correspondents in the business, CBS's Barry Peterson. Here is Peterson's exclusive report. Everyone remembers what happened on September 11th. Here's the story of what may have happened the night before. It is a tale as twisted as the hunt for Osama bin Laden. CBS News has been told that the night before the September 11th terrorist attack, Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. He was getting medical treatment with the support of the very military that days later pledged its backing for the U.S. war on terror in Afghanistan. Pakistan intelligence sources tell CBS News that bin Laden was spirited into this military hospital in Rawapendi for kidney dialysis treatment. On that night, says this medical worker who wanted her identity protected, they moved out all the regular staff in the urology department and sent in a secret team to replace them. She says it was treatment for a very special person. The special team was obviously up to no good. The military had him surrounded, says this hospital employee who also wanted his identity masked. And I saw the mysterious patient helped out of a car. Since that time, he says, I have seen many pictures of the man. He is the man we know as Osama bin Laden. I also heard two army officers talking to each other. They were saying that Osama bin Laden had to be watched carefully and looked after. Those who know bin Laden say he suffers from numerous ailments, back and stomach problems. Ahmed Rashid, who has written extensively in the Taliban, says the military was often there to help before 9-11. There were reports that Pakistan intelligence had helped the Taliban by dialysis machines. Um, and the rumor was that these were wanted for Osama bin Laden. Doctors at the hospital told CBS News there was nothing special about that night, but they refused our request to see any records. Government officials tonight denied that Osama bin Laden had any medical treatment on that night. But it was Pakistan's President Musharraf who said in public what many suspected, that bin Laden suffers from kidney disease, saying he thinks bin Laden may be near death. His evidence, watching this most recent video showing a pale and haggard bin Laden, 
his left hand never moving. Bush administration officials admit they don't know if bin Laden is sick or even dead. With respect to the issue of um, some bin Laden's health, I just um, don't have any knowledge. The U.S. has no way of knowing who in Pakistan's military or intelligence supported the Taliban or Osama bin Laden, maybe up to the night before 9-11 by arranging dialysis to keep him alive. So the U.S. may not know if those same people might help him again, perhaps to freedom. Barry Peterson, CBS News, Islamabad. Oh yes, that story from January of 2002 broadcast on the CBS Evening News and promptly filed in the memory hole where it was never talked about again. And luckily that clip has gained a fair bit of attention in recent months thanks to the death of Osama bin Laden and I'm delighted to say that it was the uh, Osama bin Laden article that I wrote shortly after his death, Osama bin Laden pronounced dead for the ninth time, which generated a lot of interest in that video and it now has uh, 44,000 views. So I am extremely glad to hear about that because this is another ex- extremely important piece of the puzzle that once again we have this uh, even more confirmation that bin Laden was waltzing around in Raul Pindi right under the nose of numerous American military advisors and liaisons with the Pakistani military being protected and given dialysis uh, just before 9-11. And, uh, and uh, yes, as they referred to at the end of that video, the last real confirmed video of bin Laden was from December of 2001, and it showed a very aging and decrepit old man who could not even move his left arm giving a speech. And uh, that, that really was the last real confirmed video of the real Osama bin Laden and whatever puppet animatronics and uh, fake actors with uh, dyed beards we've been seeing in the last few years. It certainly was uh, uh, not the man that we saw on death's doorstep in that December 2001 video, the man who actually uh, denied any involvement in 9-11. So just yet more things to add to the growing list of evidence that the official story of 9-11 was absolutely, absolutely flawed in every major detail and respect. But don't look for the corporate controlled media to ever bring those facts to your attention. Well, moving along, there are many, many, many other people that we could look into and look at their actions and what they were involved in on 9-11. But let's turn now to someone of a very, a very interesting person who definitely was, uh, was doing things on 9-11 that, uh, that suggest his involvement in those events. And that is Jerome Hauer. Now, Jerome Hauer has gotten some notoriety over the years, but for those who don't know, let's just go over some of his biographical details. He was the former director of the Office of Emergency Management under New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani from 1996 to 2000, and evidently it was his decision, his wonderful decision, to put the uh, Office of Emergency Management in WTC World Trade Center Building 7, which collapsed mysteriously into itself at freefall gravitational acceleration at 5.20 p.m. on the day of 9-11, despite not having been hit by an airplane. So it was his decision that ultimately led to the destruction of the Office of Emergency Management. And obviously that that plays into the story of Barry Jennings, another person who it would behoove the listeners to look into the whereabouts of on 9-11 and his testimony about what was happening on 9-11 at the Office of Emergency Management. But that's perhaps another story, and I will include links so you could start looking into that if you haven't done so yet. 
But uh, Jerome Hauer was working in the Office of Emergency Management. He was directing that office in the late 90s. And then he became the, uh, the assistant secretary for the Office of Public Health Emergency Preparedness in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the early 2000s. And that was a very interesting and important position because it is in that position that allegedly, reportedly, he asked, the, he advised the White House to, uh, staff to go on Cipro, the anti-anthrax drug, uh, drug on the day of 9-11. Now, uh, that, that detail, if anyone could provide a firm source for that, that would be great because it's something that's bandied around quite a bit, but... Uh, it generally tracks back to the same sources, and it doesn't really show where that uh, piece of information came from, whereas uh, Jerome Hauer actually uh, denied that piece of information in a bizarre telephone interview that Sander Hicks was able to conduct with him about his uh, relation to the anthrax uh, affair. And that's something that probably deserves its own episode unto itself. But right now, let's just listen to Jerome Hauer on the morning of 9-11 being interviewed on ABC News and... Well, I'll let you listen for yourself and judge what it was he was up to in this uh, interview. We have here with us um, a man who should know whether or not it's working, Jerry Hauer, who's the former head of New York City Mayor's Office of Emergency Management. And the last time I saw you was in that place on the west side of Manhattan, which you had designed for just an event or maybe an event not just like this. Yeah, this certainly is an incredible event, Peter. I don't think in our wildest imagination you could think about a day where simultaneous attacks, you know, we all think about it, we plan for it, but to have something like this occur is certainly, I view it as an attack on our nation. But was it, I understand your I understand your emotional state, like everybody's the same, I think we're all the same. Did you never consider that this was a possibility? Well, we consider, and as we plan for New York City, we plan for massive events. In point of fact, one of the things that we did when I was still heading up OEM was we put in place memorandums of understanding with New Jersey, with Connecticut, Nassau, Suffolk County, uh, to ensure that um, the, uh, there was enough medical care available, that uh, we had ambulances, police, firefighters, because we, uh, we had to plan for uh, horrific types of events. Uh, and as I told you when you were down, uh, we planned for uh, various types of incidents, mm-hmm. chemical and biological uh, types of attacks, for um, uh, explosive types of uh, attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this is clearly uh, an, an, just a, a devastating uh, type of an incident here in the city. The Office of Emergency Management office, that bunker, it's a pretty elegant bunker, and nor is it underground. It was second or third floor, right. I think. That's out of operation at the moment. Yeah, my understanding That's is... That's something you never planned for. Yeah, well, in fact, we did. Uh, oh. The alternate uh, was to go to police headquarters or to another location. Um, in the event uh, that the command center was um, uh, inactivated for some reason or uh, rendered useless. Um, my Do you under- know what has happened to it today? Do you know yeah. precisely what's happened to I it? I talked to some folks down there, and my understanding is that a lot of the debris has fallen and uh, has blocked uh, the access to the building. Um, I've heard some uh, reports that the, they're concerned about the structural stability of the building. 
but um, I, I have not been able to confirm that. But as part of our plan, uh, there were backups. Um, you always have backups in your planning, and uh, that's what the city is doing today. Did you catch that? They're, they're talking about the Office of Emergency Management, the one that Howard encouraged Giuliani to put in WTC7, and uh, how it was re- affected by the collapse of the trade, uh, trade towers, the twin towers that had just collapsed earlier that morning. And this is in the afternoon before WTC7 had collapsed. And there he is mentioning, well, there was a lot of debris and it blocked access, and he'd heard rumors from some people that there was some structural problems with the building. And then a few hours later, it collapsed. And uh, this, I guess, fits well in line with the uh, the BBC and other uh, CNN and other uh, news organizations announcing the collapse of WTC7 before it happened. So there you go. I guess Howard was another one of those people who got the early tip somehow that that building was coming down. Very interesting. Well, uh, Howard was very much a busy boy on that day, and there were numerous interviews with different TV and uh, radio stations from that day. But uh, let's let's listen to a different clip, one where he's talking to Dan Rather of CBS and talking about the reason for the collapse of the Twin Towers. Based on what you know, and I recognize we're dealing with so few facts, is it possible that just a plane crash could have collapsed these buildings? Or would it have required the sort of prior positioning of other explosives in the building? What do you think? No, I, I, my sense is that uh, just one, the velocity of the plane and the fact that there were, you have a plane filled with fuel hitting that building uh, that burned, uh, the, the velocity of the plane uh, certainly uh, had an impact on the structure itself. And then the fact that it burned and you had that intense heat uh, probably weakened the structure as well. Uh, and I think it, uh, it was uh, simply the, uh, the planes hitting the buildings and, and causing the collapse. Well, there you go. It's uh, certainly good that we had Jerome Howard there on the day of 9-11 telling us exactly how those towers went down and how there was nothing untoward about it and no real need for investigation because, well, his sense was that it was the planes and the the, the tremendous speeds of the impact that just uh, weakened the structural integrity of the building along with the fires. So he came up with the official story of the collapse uh, before before anyone had even begun to look at it uh, to uh, in a professional sense. And uh, it kind of makes the entire NIST team and their 10,000-page report on the initial stages of the uh, the collapse it makes it seem pretty ridiculous because all they had to do was turn to Jerome Hauer on 9-11 because apparently he had all the answers. Well, uh, a very interesting figure and one that, uh, again, it would behoove the listeners out there to look more into for themselves. And, uh, of course, you can start with that uh, very interesting uh, interview uh, Sanders Hicks, Sander Hicks did with him on uh, 9-11, but at any, or uh, on, sorry, on the anthrax attacks. But at any rate, uh, definitely someone worth keeping our eyes on and uh, yeah, for numerous reasons. Well, along those lines of people who seem to have all of the answers of the official story implanted firmly in their minds uh, before anyone had even had a chance to really react to the events of that overwhelming day, you might want to look into the Harley guy on 9-11, and you just type in Harley Man 9-11 into YouTube or a search engine, and you'll find the uh, very, very interesting interview of him, and it's uh, one of those interviews that if you showed it to someone who doesn't really understand the context of that clip or what's happening, they'll uh, probably just look at it and, and shrug their shoulders 
else, but for people who understand that there is a meme being implanted and is being implanted by by people who are uh, not being chosen at random for their comments on the street that day, well, it becomes something altogether otherwise. But again, I'll let you look into that yourself. And as we're running out of time, I would just suggest some other avenues of research along these lines. A very simple question, where were they on 9-11? But it can have some very surprising answers and answers that, again, complicate and challenge the official story of that day. So as I've already mentioned, Barry Jennings is, of course, someone that people should look into if they haven't already. And his startling testimony about what he saw that day as he was trapped in World Trade Center Building 7 for hours as explosions were going off and as he was stepping over dead bodies. Or uh, I would also suggest once again, as I have many previous times in this podcast, I would suggest that you go and listen to Project Constellation from Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com. And I'll put the link in once again in the documentation so you can go and listen to that and his remarkable story of where he was supposed to be that morning, i.e. in a meeting in which, uh, well, everyone who was actually in attendance at that meeting in the World Trade Center was killed that day. So uh, again, a very interesting story of something that was supposed to happen on 9-11 and one that uh, story that uh, well jives or meshes uh, very interestingly with Indira Singh who's another person we've featured on this podcast before and whose story is again quite remarkable lots and lots and lots of different threads and avenues to explore but again I will leave you to begin going through the documentation and exploring this more thoroughly on your own but as I say, we will be concentrating more and more on 9-11 in the coming weeks, so expect many more interviews, reports, and other uh, videos and assorted uh, goodies coming out from Corbett Report, uh, really examining this as we head towards the 10th anniversary of 9-11. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you very much for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. <laughs>